For many First Nations students, the thought of following a career in science is out of their reach. The few who have forged a pathway into the sector say they've had to overcome significant barriers posed to people from marginalised communities or low socioeconomic and culturally diverse backgrounds. But a new generation of First Nations scientists are looking to change that. Camilleroy man Corey Tutt is a keen science communicator and is heading a campaign to encourage First Nations kids to pursue a career in science. He is the founder and CEO of the charity Deadly Science and has just released his first book, The First Scientist's Deadly Invention and Innovations from Australia's First People. Corey, welcome to Speaking Out. Yama, and thank you for having me on your wonderful program. Now, before we dive into this great new book, can you tell us where you grew up and what shaped your worldview? I grew up in a place called Ewan Country, which is down on the south coast of New Zealand. I guess my worldview is kind of a couple of things that happened. My father left my mum really young. I was two years old. I might have been just under two. And I was raised by my sister and mum. You know, that taught me how to be a really empathetic person because, you know, the strong, generally the empathy in our lives comes from the strong women in our lives. And, you know, I witnessed a few tragic accidents as a young man. And I think that I got an appreciation for how short life is. And then I guess the thing that's really striking about what you've done is um, the way that you've engaged with Indigenous knowledges so deeply. So where did your early appreciation come from the richness of your own culture? As probably most people would know when they hear about me, I'm a proud Gamilaroi man and my grandfather was... You know, he's the best natural scientist I'd ever met. And actually, the reason why I'm literate today is really because of him. And he didn't get the opportunity to learn how to read, but he provided me, I think, was the catalyst for me, you know, educating myself and, and learning how to read. And that was called Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. And so I guess the interested in too is that, you know, when I went through the school system, there was kind of a prejudice that as First Nations kids, we wouldn't be interested or any good at science and maths. And I actually got taken out of economics and put into home science, which is a bit funny because I can't cook. But, but I, there's such a prejudice around. So I'm just wondering how it was that you decided that this was what you wanted to do. You've obviously become very passionate about working in the space to engage young First Nations people with and also introduce it to other young people. What was it about that that drew you into that particular space? Well, if we get if we jump back in the DeLorean and we go back in time, I as a child I was moving around around a lot of Australia. So I lived in a place called Tumby Bay in South Australia. I lived in Bulli and, and Dapdo and the Illawarra region and the South Coast and I was kind of in and out of those areas as a kid. And the only real constant in my life was all the animals that I would find and the reptiles. And that was the way that I connected with other children was I had all the party facts. So I was in colour book, but, you know, I'd be the kid picking up the blue tongue lizard in the street. And of course, all the other kids want to talk to that kid. So it was a, it was a way to connect with people. But, you know, I had read so many reptile books as a kid. And I just used to enjoy that I was sort of reared on Harry Butler tapes. Oh, gosh. I <laughs> um, remember Harry Butler. <laughs> yeah. So because, you know, we didn't have a lot. So a lot of Harry Butler stuff ended up at the Salvos and ended up at, like, secondhand shops. And I would get $5 off my pop every year, and I'd probably more often than not buy books or Harry Butler dollars. 
So I used to love watching Harry Butler and, and Rod Brettle and, and all these guys and I'm becoming that um, because I, I used to make a lot of friends when I was connecting with animals and stuff like that. So by the time I was 16, I sat across my careers advisor and he said, what do you want to be when you leave school? Which is a you know stereotypical question that everyone gets asked. And he, he goes, oh, I sort of replied and said, I want to be a zookeeper. I want to be a wildlife documenter. And I want to be an ABC sports commentator because I knew I could talk and that could fund the other two. <laughs> he his response to me was striking in the sense of it was it was a very similar response my sister got actually but you know he sort of said you should probably stick to a trade because if you don't stick to a trade and probably leave school now you'll probably end up getting into trouble or worse you'll end up probably dying at a young age and I don't want that for you and you know I was a bit spurred on his I always was determined to prove people wrong um you know, I played rugby league as a kid and I was quite small and, you know, I was so determined that, you know, if I didn't make that team to prove that I could make that team, I'll tackle everyone on my team just to prove it. And I didn't like the word can't. And I didn't like people putting limitations on my life because these limitations were assessed on my race, um, my social economic standing, you know, being a single mum and older sister and you know, I never wanted that to be my the reason why people thought that I couldn't do things. That sounds like a, a fairly common experience for First Nations students. I just know from working in the education sector that you run up against people who underestimate you because of their own prejudices and f- feel they're, they're being well-intentioned when they send you on a different path. But you've kind of, you know, ignored all of that and already made an amazing and wonderful contribution. The book is beautiful and full of facts, and I want to dig into a couple of things in a minute. But I was just wondering if you could talk to us about, obviously you would have had a lot of knowledge when you came together to put the, the book together, but what were the things that surprised you most when you were actually compiling the book? Um. Actually, you know, when when I think about it, the First Nations science stuff doesn't surprise me because our mob are the, the oldest scientists, we're the oldest living culture in the world, and we all know we all know the stuff that our, our cultures bring, the beauty, the beauty, the song lines, the the knowledge. Surprised me a lot with doing research for the book was how much of this knowledge actually is out there in day to day mainstream Australia. You know, for example, if you have ants in your house, it generally means rain, right? bit of science because you know we mobs actually used to predict rain by the way the ants are moving on the ground you know even even something like the black cockatoos flying over in a certain direction means that the weather direction because they're trying to escape the weather that comes that those old sort of sayings that we get taught when we're young they come from science so the thing that surprised me a lot was that you know this stuff has been ingrained in australian culture just it just hasn't been properly acknowledged. The fact that you know the New South Wales, the Victorian, the course, um, even the Northern Territory Police Force, right up until recently, hired Aboriginal bush trackers to find people missing in the bush. Now, if that's not forensic science, then I'll eat my hat because it might not be aluminol, might not be spraying aluminol to find. But the fact that we had all this technology in the 80s and the 90s still, and we we still hired people to find people missing in the bush, you know, shows that our people had a way of, of understanding the land and observing second to none. And it was greater than the technology at the time. 
I do love that about the book. It, you know, it does speak a broader number of Australians are now becoming more aware of and interested in like, you know, fire burning and land management. They understand the tech, you know, how brilliant the technology of the boomerang is. But I think one of the things that I love about how you actually bring out a whole range of other ways and forensic science is one of those things. Another one that I think there is a sort of uh, increasing interest in understanding the complexity of was, can you tell us a little bit about what you've included in the book about our first astronomers? Well, yeah, and, and even in my Camilleroid culture, you know, we, we have such a great relationship with the stars. You know, we look for the dark emu in the sky, the constellation, which is not counting the white patches, it's actually counting the dark patches in between the stars. So it's the opposite of the Western system. And it, and it creates an emu. And depending on the season, it tells us what's happening on the land. So if the emu's facing a certain way, it means that we go and collect the emu eggs or we go on an emu hunt, perhaps. But it also, you know, if we, we go across the nations, it, it can, like a, a certain observation with a star, like maybe even a, might indicate the gases going a certain way and that there, there's rain on the way or, or a storm on the way. Or it might be time to harvest. So it might be time to harvest the yams when this when particular stars come out. So it's really taking on vation that is on land and putting it into the sky so that can tell us the lessons and the and the answers to what's happening on land as well. So there is quite a problem with that though. And the problem is now is that the year is twenty twenty one and we are putting an incredible amount of satellites up into the sky. And that you know, the old Steve Irwin saying is don't muck with it. It's very much similar now because we have so much space junk in the sky that a lot of these stories are getting destroyed. We have this artificial light in the sky that is, is making these stars not appear as bright. And, and one good example for the listeners is, is that if you stare at the night sky in, in Sydney to maybe three stars, but if you go out to Canamble or where there's no light pollution, the whole sky is lit up with stars. And that, unfortunately, in the future, if we continue to put these satellites up there and continue to put things in space, is going to disappear. Another area that I thought was really cleverly done was your chapter on the first chemists. And I think people do understand that there's an enormous knowledge that our elders particularly have about bush medicine, but you go much deeper than that in terms of helping to our science behind that. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the things you explore in terms of our first chemists? Well, I guess, and then the other thing as well, like if you have a piece of um, First Nations art in your wall at home, I challenge you to go find the story of that because every single piece of artwork has a story and, and it, the story can be quite amazing and long and, and it's, it's something that is shared. But to make that story possible, someone has to mix the ochres, the minerals, you know, to make these paints, you know, potentially even, you know, emu egg yolk to, to seal it so it lasts you know, for many years. So that story can continue to be told. So I, my challenge is to listeners is when you see a piece of Indigenous art from anywhere in the world, doesn't matter, have a greater appreciation for it because this thing has been designed for people to enjoy and to to learn and be proud of for, for generations. If that's not chemistry, then what is? That's what we need to have the conversation about. You know, the fact that most Australians could walk down a, a shopping aisle in Coles and Woolworths and see Baralum, which is tea tree oil. 
and not know that that is probably one of the, the oldest bush medicines. And that comes from our people. You know, we need to, as a society, be better at acknowledging that and acknowledging what is science. And, and I'll tell you something really funny, right? So some bozo once, he goes, well, if your people were such great scientists, how come they didn't wear lab coats? <laughs> um, and, I, and, and he sort of said to me, oh, where's the wheel? But, like, we didn't need wheels. You know, we didn't need it because we had everything we needed, and that's sustainability. So one of the things I did with first scientists is I put all the black fellas in lab coats. The illustrations are beautiful. Well, the thing is, is that like the images we normally see of Albert Einstein's and Thomas Edison's, and mind you, they never wore lab coats, by the way. But the thing is, is that a lab coat is just a bit of PPE. It stops you from being burnt by chemicals. It's not defined by race. It's not defined by sexuality. Defined by you know if you're male or female. It's just a bit of PPE. So we need to change the image of who wears a lab coat, and we need to decolonize the lab coat because. You know, as you'll find out, our mob have been doing science for 65,000 plus years and I love sport and art, but they're not the be-all and end-all for our people. I have to say, I have a, I love uh, crime investigation. So I was very interested in your first forensic scientist chapters as well, which I guess speaks to the fact that you've done this, as I just mentioned, the beautiful illustrations by Black Douglas as a children's book. But I have to say... Uh, there's a copy in my library and I just love it. So what's been the reaction to the book since it's come out? Well, I just want to say I'm a massive dude, um, <laughs> hence why I included forensic scientists in there. And I absolutely loved researching, you know, stuff about Ned Kelly and, and all that because there's a lot there that we don't get taught in schools. And for me, the, the book's been really great. I remember the first scientists in my local bookshop and I kind of cheekily pulled out a pen and I wrote a message in there. And it was, Dear Deadly Scientists, I hope this book is and purpose because they are the two ingredients that we all need. And I hope that it inspires you to, to find out more about your deadly side, find out more about the culture and more about the science and, and what was here before and what is here now because the peoples are still doing science whether that's a young ranger working in the Kirikara Rangers to, to save the bilby or the night parrot. If that's not science, then what is? And maybe we should just, if it's only meant for one demographic of people, let's just change the word science to better suit that because I think that that's got to start the conversation. I'm feeling a bit sad that mine doesn't have a, something in the front from you, but next time I see you, I'm going to get you to sign it. Uh, put something with to inspire me, as if the book hasn't already. You must have seen an increase in interest in First Nations science and knowledge since you've been doing this work from the general public. Do you feel that there's a greater engagement with, with those ideas? People are no longer erroneously Stone Age culture. Oh, look, this is one of those situations where we're at a, a systematic change where, you know, people are, are starting to wise up a little bit and realise that the people that came before us, you know, potentially were a little bit racist and were racist and some people are going to be stuck behind and we can't kill them with hate, you know, because we become prisoners of our own hate. We need to educate, and if they're not willing to be educated, we just need to, you know, we can't become prisoners of our own anger because what's getting us through is our love. And, that, and that what, what has made our culture survived 
is the fact the love we have for our mobs and each other and our families. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we just need to, some of these extreme people that, that write things online and be pretty stupid things really, but we don't need to fuel their fire, you know? And I think that everyone's sort of changing as we go, you know, we're doing welcome to countries and acknowledgements to country. And I, I would say to people that, you know, when, when you do an acknowledgement, don't download one off the internet, you know, learn, learn about your first people in your area, make it individualized, you know, feel it. Don't do it because you feel like you have to do it because you want to do it because you, you care about our first nations people. And I think if everyone accepts some really, really bad things happened and we, we can accept the good things that our culture has, you know, our first people invented bread. Like they looked at the stars and they predicted, you know, and if we, if we draw parallels to the pyramids, the pyramids are 4,000 years old and Egypt celebrate the pyramids because they're a massive tourist attraction, but they're also culturally significant to their country. Now, if we took a bit of that, that pride, and we put that into our First Nations people, which we're, we're, we're doing, but we're doing slowly, then, you know, we have kids, instead of, you know, learning, you know, they're learning their local language in their, their school or like the you know, they're appreciating whose lands are on. This is what's going to drive us forward. And I really want to see that. I want to see, you know, I'm happy with where we're going, but it's not enough yet. You know, we've still got kids being locked up as young as 10 in the NT. And what's happening to their education? Like, why why are we still doing this? We've got a lot to work on, but we're getting, we can't kill the things that make us unhappy with hate. We've got to cure them with love and care for each other. What's your advice to the equivalent of a, a young Corey, male or female, uh, who would be seeking um, career advice at this time on, on the pathways possible through science? Your road. It's an individual road. You can have blinkers on if you need, but, you know, even the greatest thing wheels every now and again, and you're going to hit a few potholes. You're going to hit a few bumps and lumps along the way. And But first and foremost what makes you safe on your journey is being a good empathetic person. Because if you're empathetic and you care and you care enough of you do, your purpose will be really simple and they'll be using today to make tomorrow better. And that's what science is about, isn't it? It's about creating a better tomorrow. So I would say to young people, don't be too hard on yourselves. Realize that you're going to have some bumps and you know problems along the way, but surround yourself with those who care and can be your training wheels just like the cyclists and it is okay to use training wheels even as an adult and if you're a good person will eventually lead to where you need to be. Now Corey you recently won a prestigious Eureka Prize for STEM inclusion. Anyone listening to our conversation tonight is not going to be surprised to hear that and I know that is not why you do this work but how did it feel that work recognized in such a forum? Uh, it was incredible. Um, I was actually quite speechless when my name got read out and, and Team Deadly Science. Like, the thing is for me is this, as much as this is an achievability and it's a responsibility for me to take this award out to schools. So in the future, maybe next year, maybe the year after, my the kids that look up to me are winning the top prizes in science. They're winning Eurekas, winning it for being inclusive. They're not winning it for being a citizen scientist. They are winning it because they deserve it. And they all do. And I think that this this award for me and, and what I'm going to do with this award is I'm going to make it make sure that 
I work with that comes across deadly science is going to feel like they have an opportunity to to grow into this and to you know to one day lead science for our people and and win these awards because this this award is wasted sitting on my shelf i want kids to be able to hold it i want kids to be able to experience it because if we don't do that then it just becomes another award on the shelf and it's wasted but it, and it's it's something that i'm so grateful to have well, Corey, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for being such a great inspiration. Thank you for this fabulous book and for solving one of the uh, challenges of what I'm going to get my nephews for Christmas. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out this evening. I'm so grateful for you having me and thank you. And I hope everyone's staying safely in COVID and, and just know that you're not alone. And if you need to reach out to someone, reach out to them and, and stay deadly always. That's Corey Tutt, founder and CEO of the charity Deadly Science and author of the book, The First Scientists, Deadly Inventions and Innovations from Australia's First People.